subject for the evening talk is freedom of the heart. One of the key words used in these uh, teachings is the word uh, Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A. And the word Dharma um, means essentially teachings which uh, focus and point to freedom of the heart, complete freedom of being. And the teachings are, I would regard them as a very comprehensive view of uh, human existence, something for you and I to explore, to investigate, to uncover, to meditate upon, and certainly a body of teachings which uh, leaves uh, no stone unturned. So, the purpose of the Dharma is, a, is intended towards shedding light on every feature of ourselves and especially uh, through the vehicle of our experience. And it's in the area of experience that Dharma, teacher makes it, Dharma teachings makes its primary reference through experience to understand the nature of living a liberated and uh, enlightened life. Sometimes when we pick up the uh, uh, newspapers, the, um, the book section, or if we look these days into um, uh, various uh, forms of uh, therapy, spiritual work, uh, New Age practices and contemporary teachings and uh, religions, we see the diversity of what's being uh, uh, offered. And some, very importantly, and certainly very effectively, point to particulars, particular ways and means and helpful ways of means to deal with this whole experience of what living is all about. And one only has to look at the top ten these days of any section in a non-fiction writing, and for sure, for sure, one will see some uh, spiritual books, or books on reducing stress, or a uh, little book of calm, or whatever, it, whatever the uh, current um, uh, interest is. And I saw that and put all that into a certain... Uh, kind of uh, context in which there is priorities there, but these, these teachings say every moment of our existence does matter. Every feature of our life is worth attending to. And therefore, it traditionally in Dharma teachings has been summarized in what's classically called uh, the Noble Eightfold Path meaning those who apply the teachings live with nobility. Therefore, teachings that contribute to genuine right understanding, to uh, clear in right intention, clear intentions, to speech, to action, to livelihood, to what's worth making an effort about, to uh, um, mindfulness and awarenesses in life, to depths of meditation. And sometimes it, uh, teachings ask of us, or it's not demand of us, in a way, to say, let's really take a look at our life 
And let's really see, just from those eight features that I just referred to, how much of my life, what, quali- what is there in my life that really is in harmony with each and every one of, of those as a way of living a, a noble way of life. And sometimes we look into any one of those eight areas with ourselves and we say, well, I really need to give attention to this area. I need, re- really need to notice what I, what I speak about. And if in my speech there is backbiting and uh, gossip and malicious speech and uh, uh, harmful speech, boosting people up, putting people down, or whatever. So all of it is a reminder and a, a strong uh, reminder to each and every one of us to look in to ourselves, day in and day out, to make that a real feature of our life for the fairly simple reason. We might have to live with other people, but one thing is guaranteed. We have to live with ourselves, and we have to live with ourselves, not just for a few days, this is a long-term relationship, and it will go on till the nature comes and takes the last breath out of the body. So, teaching say, huh? what, what does that mean? Here we are, living with others, living with the world around us, but we're also living with ourselves, and that's a certainly uh, an undertaking. <clears throat> when we kind of step back into ourselves a little bit further, and a little bit uh, deeper with all of this, we also notice not only the, the world of thought, our ideas, our views, our abstractions, our metaphysics, our theories, our mental deductions or whatever, but what we sometimes forget, and very easily forget, thoughts don't exist by themselves. Not a chance. They exist with the rest of us. And though we might become rather mental and cerebral and intellectual and, and all, all of that, nevertheless, there are influences going on beneath and behind the thoughts. And those influences, in our meditation, we wish to attend to. And so, sometimes what we attend to is the kind of feelings life, I'm not talking about emotions for the moment, but the kind of feelings that are going on inside of us, and the way those feelings can be, by the strength of them, or the lack of strength of them, be influencing the way that we're thinking. And this observation, this attention to the relationship of what we feel and what we think, this relationship has a major influence on our whole life. Hardly, we might talk about our feelings, we might do some meditations on our feelings, we might do some workshop on our emotions or, or whatever. And all of that can be helpful and valuable. But, turning the attention to the relationship of feelings to thoughts and thoughts to uh, feelings, that if we're going to know what clarity is in life, if we're going to know what wisdom is in life, then one way that it will show itself and the significance of it is that it influences what we feel and what we think. If wisdom is not to be something abstract, and our understanding, our freedom of the heart, isn't abstract, 
and is something which we can know through our experience. The confirmation of the knowing is in the way that it influences feeling and thought. Because what you and I feel and what you and I think, it matters to us. So, teachings, and in the Dharma teaching, you can hardly go pages in the Dharma teachings without references to the world of feelings and thoughts as that which is most noticeable, rather obvious to us. Just to take example. The mind comes up and it says, uh, the thoughts come and says, uh, um, I want something, or I want someone. And the thought begins to think about how I can achieve this. It might be something, a noble goal or whatever. And as the thought develops itself, in other words, as we keep thinking about something, in the continuity of the thinking, it begins to matter more to us. The thought helps to confirm how much something matters to us. We think about it more. And that thought may set us in a particular direction. I need to think about how I'm going to get my livelihood together. I need to think about my uh, relationship or whatever it might be. I need to think about um, what direction my life is going, etc. And the thought then begins to come out of the brain cells, come out of us, and we begin to think more about something. But it seems like you and I can keep thinking about something and it doesn't actually make it clearer for us. And sometimes, the more we think about it, the worse it seems to get. And we say with the mind, why can't my mind just think nicely and logically and cleanly and progressively and orderly and think it through and then when I come to the conclusion, stop the thinking and then turn my attention to um, something else like, oh, it's, what a nice day I missed. Uh, or whatever it might be. What is it that's going on in the mind that the mind doesn't think in, it, in the way that we would like? And so sometimes we find ourselves fastening onto the idea and the continuity of the thought and then there is some resistance to keep thinking about it or him, or her, or this, or that, or oneself, or whatever it might be. And so then there's one direction of thought which wants to keep on thinking, and there's another whole train of thought on a collision course, which says, I've got to, keep sto- I've got to stop thinking about this. And the thoughts begin to arise, about how one is going to stop thinking about this. And so thinking and trying to stop thinking, thinking for and thinking against thinking, begin to collide, and this is exhausting. This is a typical British understatement. And one's not, it's been so 
infatuated with the quantity and the quality and the manifestation of thought, one hasn't really stopped to think, well, what's actually going on behind all of the thinking? It doesn't just hang in the mist of the mind, it doesn't just kind of dwell around in consciousness. It's got to have something giving it support. And one of the things which gives it support is what one is feeling at that time. So sometimes there is, as example, uh, a pleasant feeling which is arising. And upon the pleasant feeling comes a thought about whatever. And sometimes we notice that in the strength of the pleasant feeling gives rise to the amount of thought that goes with it. And similarly, correspondingly, oppositely, we have an unpleasant feeling about something, something here, something in the past, some unpleasant feeling about what might happen in the future. Feeling arises, it's an unpleasant feeling which uh, arises, and to some degree the strength of the unpleasant feeling easily brings the strength of the thought to go with it. And there's a strange thing about both, and the pleasant and the unpleasant, the extraordinary feeling of conviction that there is. If the feeling is strong, pleasantly, or unpleasantly, the thought is strong, and the resulting view is strong. We are convinced by the strength of feeling and thought. What a way to live. And we don't realize when we are trapped in it how much the mind, that means the heart, the feeling, and the thought, the mind, heart and mind, the feeling and thought, is caught. It's caught. And the two latch on together, strong feeling, strong thought about something, latch on together, and it pulls us along. And how many times in life have we, when we've been high on something, thoughts about it, we can't hold the thought, so we speak about it, and we act upon it, and a little while later on, it might all collapse upon us. And then there's terrible regret. Why didn't I see that? I get so excited and so charged up about something. I went along with it. Thoughts carried me along. And that, as we sometimes say, is all that I could see. Unless I get caught along, swept along, and then the whole thing collapses. What is it that happened that we feel thrilled, excited, exhilarated, and then change? What didn't I see? Similarly, with feeling and thought, as I said, it can apply equally in this world to something which is um, unpleasant. 
we have a dislike of something or someone or whatever it might be. And the inner life gets caught up in it. We believe in it strongly. And the thought keeps giving it extra confirmation. Totally convinced. And thus, when that which interests comes to us, maybe a person, it may be a place, it may be a memory, it may be something about the future, it may be something about oneself. When that comes to us, whoever it, what comes to us, in it's coming to us, sometimes, as the Buddha said, it's so fast, we couldn't think of a simile for it. That in other words, something comes to us, and immediately, the same old feeling and thought arises. Immediately. It, he said, it's so quick, the mind to arise in that way, he couldn't think of a simile. And this guy was mad about similes. So there's this movement which goes on, and, as it were, the quality of our life is very much shaped and felt and known by what we feel and what we think. That matters to us. But there's this whole spectrum as well, which is kind of in between. It's not kind of pleasant, and it's not unpleasant, it's just in between. And in that, sometimes we get um, lots of ideas. Just, or the mind is just circulating in, in, in various ways. Can't, we don't say it's especially pleasant, we don't say it's uh, um, unpleasant. Sometimes we get involved in ideas of objectivity or in our, our, our theories and we say, well, look, there's no feeling about it. There's just this formation of mentality, this formation of thought uh, which is taking place. And then there can seem to be a, a gap. A gap between thought and the feeling life. And there is a danger in that gap. One wouldn't say that there is an absence of feeling, but the feeling factor is not noticeably pleasant, and it's not noticeably unpleasant. It falls in between. And in that kind of neutralized, we might say, uh, feeling, we can get out of touch with the, the depth of feeling in life, and one of the effects of it is spending far too much time thinking. And when the thinking stops, what's left? Boredom. Dullness. Feeling of lifelessness. Lack of vitality. Lack of uh, energy. What's left? Alienation. Disconnection. Lack of compassion lack of communication. Why? So much time in the mentality through, through study, through patterns from childhood, through uh, being frozen up, through 
through coldness, through distance, through whatever it, whatever it, whatever it might be. And the consequence of that is known in oneself, of course, but equally known from, by others as well. So to say, with patterns of strong, pleasurable thinking, takes an awareness and vigilance about where is that going? Patterns of unpleasant and painful thoughts, vigilance about that and where that's going. But equally important too, is that those areas, they say it's not especially pleasant, nor uh, unpleasant, but how easy absence of heart begins to come in. And in our uh, environment, social environment that you and, you and I live, there's more and more danger and risk of that. Through all the reasons that people begin to lose something in, 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 uh, in, in the depth. And one hears these dreadful concepts like um, compassion fatigue, Passion fatigue. Nonsense idea. It's something to do with some lack of connection, lack of understanding, lack of freedom, freedom of the heart. So, just as that, I speak of that in a general way, equally it can happen very specifically as well. And so we can just do whatever, walking meditation, standing meditation, sitting meditation, and it can become rather ritualistic. What would make it ritualistic? No feeling in it. What would make it a kind of mechanical habit through the day? No feeling in it. What would make it dull? And, oh God, yet another sitting in the hell realm called the meditation hall. What would make it all that? lack of feeling, lack of connection with it. So very easily, anything which you and I engage in, anything, anything, with repetition, regularly, can end up losing the life in it. Think about anything. I, 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 I remember that some of you um, um, know this um, uh, I had the, uh, the uh, privilege of leaving school at the, at the age of uh, uh, 15 uh, and it was one of the great liberations I would call it so I started working in a newspaper office in Fleet Street at this time this was a street full of newspapers and it was in the editorial department of a kind of office boy come messenger boy and my job in the editorial department, um, that's the, news, the newsroom, was the, the filing clerk. So basically, when one started off, you got the weekly newspaper, and then you cut, cut the items out, and then in this person's name, you put the next part of the filing cabinet, the other person's name, or this place, or this story, and that was my job. And so, when the uh, journalist said, oh, I want a piece on something in the Vatican, or I want a piece about 
this person or whatever it was, you know, I'd just, I'd just go and pull out the filing cabinet and get the item out and put it on his desk or her desk, whatever. So in the beginning, when, you know, one was out of, out of school for one thing and one was earning the princely sum of uh, £4 a week for being a filing clerk. And one starts off with interest. And it's easier than feeling some responsibility, one's got a job, etc., etc. That probably lasted probably 48 hours, or no, no, a bit longer than that. And one finds that through the repetition of doing something, it makes, it can, doesn't have to, can make the mind dull. The mind gets into a kind of groove. And one can do it with hardly any awareness. We know this is household tasks and numerous other, other things in our brushing our teeth in our day-to-day life. And we forget that the consequence is the effect on how we feel. And we say, well, just doing it is so boring. It's the same old thing day after day. You know, know, when you travel on the um, underground train in um, cities which have underground trains, at eight o'clock in the morning, if you're not quite sure what I'm talking about this evening, then if you're travelling through London after the retreat, get on the underground train at eight in the morning, you know exactly what I mean about repetition and dullness and feeling of lifelessness, etc. So something goes on in the human psyche which has an impact on the feeling life, has an impact on the thought uh, life, and sometimes there's a numbing, deadening effect. And we have to ask ourselves, do I want to live like this? Do, 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 do I have to live a prisoner within the realm of feeling and thought, pleasant, unpleasant, and or in between? And if I don't, what on earth is going to, what, waken me up? What is earth is going to enlighten me? That I don't feel like that, even on the underground at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. Something shifts, has the potential to shift inside, to open up the life in, inside. But unfortunately, we have become terribly reliant on the stimulation to feel alive. We call it alcohol, we call it uh, drugs, we call it um, 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 standing, if you're you're a male mostly, standing um, on a Saturday afternoon in some windswept football stadium either yelling praise or yelling abuse at your local football team or, or whatever it is. And so there's kind of little pockets that go on, or sometimes dancing, you know, clapping, my daughter would say, or, or other things, in which suddenly one, one feels alive. Sometimes in drama, in relationship, it's not sometimes not so necessary to actually have it, 
But the yelling, the crying, the shouting, the blame, it seems better than feeling half dead in the relationship. And just as we sit here this evening, there's this, these strange species in Northern Ireland called the, what are they called? The Orange People or something. Nothing to do with Osho. Well, my head, but... <laughs> and they're walking. And then the police say to them, look, you can't go any further. This is the Republican area. This is the Catholic area. And so these chaps with their orange flags to celebrate some war, and they're walking, they have their bowler hats on and their suits on, and, and they walk, and now they're very, very uh, angry with the government and angry with the police and angry with ev- everybody, uh, etc. And so there are these very heated statements and comments made to the world's uh, media, and then some others go and light a, a fire and throw a few stones or whatever. I can't help feeling it all an escape from an empty life. And that, since the TV programmes are so lousy in the summer, <laughs> that going out on the streets and, uh, and doing a few marches and throwing a few stones or, 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 or whatever energises, and I'm sure some of these poor old farts who are in their 60s and 70s, as a result of this energising of their feelings and thoughts and self-righteousness, they probably live five or ten years uh, longer. Just a newspaper story the other day of that poor man, I think it was in Germany, who was discovered. And uh, he had died six years ago in front of his television set. And nobody had found him. Can you imagine? You're watching TV, uh, old, probably, a, you know, probably a comment on German television, it might be, I don't know, but anyway, killed by, you know, death by boredom. <laughs> and nobody knew this poor man, there he was in this chair. Can you imagine? Six years! <laughs> television was on for a year or two before it burnt out. Something goes on in the psyche of life, in the in the in the inner in the life, and and in the, the tragedies of it as 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 well. It has a killing, numbing effect. And I say that can happen in meditation. One can be just watching the the, the, the soap opera of one's own mind, and gradually it's killing one off. All through the repetition of things. So it takes awareness and attention and an interest. What is what is all this feeling and thought? When I am sitting in the hall here, what shows the love? Since you and I appreciate love, we enjoy the the sense and the quality and the feeling of it. We can acknowledge it with uh, uh, others. Obviously, the world would be a significantly different place if there was much more love in it between us. Therefore, we can contribute in that way. Where is the love in the silence? When I'm, when I'm engaged in the wa- walking, and when it's just walking uh, up and down 
in that moment? Where is the gratitude? When I'm just taking of uh, uh, food and all the time and care that's taken by many to put it together from the farmers to the cooks, uh, uh, etc. Where is the appreciation? When I'm uh, in, engaged in uh, some uh, ordinary work activity, where is the feeling of compassion uh, in those moments? What's been the ongoing demonstration through the day of kindness? How is that manifesting and uh, revealing itself? And if in our uh, way of being in this world those things of the heart are not clear and outstanding to us, where are we? Who are we? What else matters? So the teachings, the Dharma, the teachings and practices say to us, look, here's the meditation, here are the forms, here's the methods, here's the technique, here's the reminder, eightfold path, four noble truths, seven factors for in, in, enlightenment, five features of a human being, etc., etc. All of this is really worth our attending to. And in our attending to all of this, when we look within, it's the feeling and the thoughts which count. How, how, how that is showing itself. And sometimes we, 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 the thought is so electric in the way that it rushes in that it, we hardly give the, 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 the opportunity and the chance for simple, natural, free feelings to show themselves. It, it might be we are the sun shines, lovely day, and the colours and the flowers, or whatever, or we observe, we notice something unusual. And in the uh, noticing uh, of it, some warm response comes. But how very, very quickly we want to, to name it. We want, our mind starts thinking, oh, when I leave here, I must tell so-and-so what I saw. They're not, they're not going to be interested anyway. But mind does, does this. And though there's an act of wishing to share and, and that kind of generosity of, of spirit, but the thought begins to water down the initial outcome of appreciation. Because we begin to describe it, we begin to label it, we begin to give a commentary on it. We begin to thinking, oh, I should do a course and study about it, or, or whatever. And as the mind gets into all of that, the feeling connection is getting less and less by the moment. And it's a terrible pity. So in our meditations, in our practices, Whole day is given to looking at this. Whole day is given to knowing ourselves more well and deeply. Whole day offers uh, endless opportunities 
just to stop and to be still and let oneself know what one is feeling in the moment. Sometimes the feeling arises and with the feeling, especially the unpleasant one, there is quite often the feeling arises, the mind comes in very quickly, puts the pressure on the feeling and one wants to avoid. One wants to avoid. Somebody not unusual uh, uh, referred uh, uh, today in uh, uh, seeing a mouse. And sometimes, for some people, it sends up an alarm, alarm signal. You know, as we all know, essentially, it's just a small little animal uh, in the nature, house mice, field mice, or or whatever, and but and harmless and as just as about as timid a thing on this earth as one could find. But so often these are not the associations. You know, we're not talking about Bombay rats. We're talking about you know little little mice and. But the association is, there's the perception, the feeling arises, which says uh, um, um, unpleasant or, or, or whatever, and then very quickly the mind comes in and wants to avoid, wants to escape, doesn't want to deal with, and wants to stay away from. Teachings and practices are teachings and practice of learning to stay with what is. Somehow or other, the attention, somehow not easy, has got to find a way of turning its attention back to that which it doesn't want to face. For the simple truth of life is, that mouse is not only a fact, it's a metaphor. Something else will take the form of the mouse. Today it's the mouse. It can be anything. And therefore, it, its uh, impact, unpleasant feeling, that electrically quick tendency to avoid, to escape, to deny, to suppress, or, or whatever. And somewhere in us, the wisdom is to say, no, let me stay with this. Let me face this. Let me attend to this. Let me be present to this. Till we can be steady and be, as uh, the Buddha said, like the mountain in the hurricane. We can stay steady. And there are plenty of situations where the mind's tendency is to want to turn away from its unpleasant. I remember um, um, one of the nuns who has been here, Meichi Patomwan, took ordination when she was uh, 12 years of age, and has been ordained, she and I are the same age, and have been uh, friends since our mid-twenties. And some years ago I invited her here to uh, England. She's been living in the same monastery, lived in two monasteries in the last um, 42 years, and in uh, uh, the same monastery for the last 37 years. So you can imagine, it's a bit of a step to go from monastery to the deteriorating western paradise. And anyway, she came, and I remember she told a story. In those of you who know Thailand, the Thais are terribly suspicious about, or fearful about ghosts. 
very much in the culture ghost spirits, very much in the culture of Thai Thai Buddhists. And and for her, this is a teenager, she was afraid of uh, the cemeteries at night. Afraid of going to the cemetery at night. Because the ghosts wander the cemetery. The disembodied spirits are wandering around the cemeteries. They hover around there. And she said, the only way she could go cut, get through this was to go and spend nights in there. Here, one behind here. <laughs> and that's what she did to overcome the fear. What sometimes in the world of psychology these days is called confrontational therapy. One confronts the demons. And so sometimes these situations arise, as I say. It's not the unpleasantness. It's not the, the, uh, the reaction of that. It's what we do with it. And can we just develop our practice? So when that's occurring, whether it's called pain in the body, whether it, it, it's called being out at night, whether it's called sleeping less, eating less, or whatever it, it, whatever it might be that we avoid doing because of fear of what might happen, we just extend ourselves. Like Meiji, uh, the nun, like Meiji Paton one uh, did. Went to the place where, as it were, the tiger was. All of this contributes significantly to opening up the heart to find what a, a genuine freedom of the heart, a genuine sense and knowing that the heart is immeasurable. Meaning, immeasurable means it can accommodate anything. Anything. And teachings of Dharma and teachings of practice are such that it points to that so that a liberated life or an enlightened life is the same thing as saying the heart knows no measurement. And Therefore, our sitting and our walking and our standing and our eating and our listening to uh, teachings and our silences and our stillnesses and our communications or whatever are directly and indirectly constantly minded to that. So if one says, oh, I'm just sitting here and nothing's happening. I'm sitting here and I'm not feeling anything. Rather than just drawing a kind of, well, that's how I am. Why is it like this? Beautiful thing to sit and to, to be on this earth and to be in silence and to be in touch and in contact with like-minded people. Beautiful thing to listen to today. A wonderful thing to stay and face one's existence and sometimes to do it for the first time in one's life and there's a certain honesty about it. And that kind of recognition and, and acknowledgement gives us nourishment. And it begins to reveal itself in the way we feel and think. 
I don't want to live half a life. I'm going to live on this earth. I don't, I, want, I don't want to live a life of running after this and avoiding that. I want to make each day, as the, as the, as the Buddha said, better, he said, to live one day with such an awareness than live a hundred years without it. Better. One day of real, full awareness and, and connection and interest with the ordinary and the everyday than a hundred years drifting through it. And when we drift through it, and when we feel we haven't lived, it, those people have the most to worry about death. People who have lived don't mind about death. One has lived. But it's that even not having lived, <laughs> death is terrible because it takes the opportunity away. And here we're receiving and getting just reminders, essentially, that this is the opportunity. For life, death is accommodated, it's a compliment, it's a support. Unfulfilled, unfull life, death is terrible. It's a horror. It's a something frightening. So let us live the day. Live the day is to go deep. To go deep is to see the way extraordinary feelings of life nourish everything that we do. And then the heart is free. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with freedom of being. Have a couple of quiet minutes together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.